Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, um, hi, I'm the pastor, and I know I haven't seen some of you all in a while. Uh, I have been away on sabbatical, and uh, it has been good to come back to the church and to be able to get reconnected with you all and to see you all. Uh, By God's grace, we had some really awesome preachers if you were here for the last five weeks. Um, One of them was Rasul Berry preaching a fire word, and um, Michael Carrion preached a fire word. Oh, man, Steve Cantor preached that thing. So we, we praise God for everyone that was able to come and I'm just honored to be able to do that, to be able to step away. Um, One of the things that I want to make sure we understand is that when we talk about taking a sabbatical, it is not the same as a vacation, although there was definitely some vacationing happening. Um, But much of the time that I'm away is not just to get away from work, but it is to really get closer to God and to hear from God and to hear what is it the Lord has for the next steps the next stages, the next seasons of our church. That I would be a leader that is led, that I'm following God's voice. And while I was away, I really felt like God was pressing on me about uh, some things and some areas that um, we collectively can grow as a church. I believe that as a church, we are a people of great faith. As I've heard so many of your stories as I've seen so many of you endure and grow, we are people of great faith, and I believe our worship and our love for God is authentic. But we are a church that is filled with people all over the map, spiritually. And one of the things that I believe that God pressed on my heart is that we must collectively, not just a few of us, but collectively, we must become people of the word. We must be people of the book. Now, we cannot be people who just have impressions from God or feelings or we get moved by what's happening outside in the world, but we must be anchored in God's word. When, my, uh, when I left my house, my mom said, baby, you, you know, one thing you got to be sure of, you got to learn how to cook for yourself. Because if you don't, learn how to cook for yourself, you'll always have to eat out and eat whatever is given to you. And one of the great challenges is that we have not, as Christians, learned how to feed ourselves. We've not learned how to get into the word for ourselves. Now, one thing that has changed, what I think is amazing, is when I was coming up, you know, Kirk Franklin was just coming out, you had commissioned and all these great artists, and all of a sudden it became you know, Christian hip-hop, and you had Cross Movement, Lecrae, and all this, and The Truth, and then all of a sudden, a shift happened, and now I would say that sermons and preachers are on par, celebrity-wise, than musicians were when I was coming up. And that is amazing that we share sermons. Like, I think that is fantastic, that, that preachers are becoming popular, and far from me to be a hater. I think that is a great thing. I love us 
sharing God's word. But I fear for us because oftentimes I find some of us getting inundated with preachers that are entertaining, but they're not anointed. And when you don't know the word, you can't tell entertainment from anointing. So you've got to know the book for yourself. You've got to be able to have a grid going through your mind, a filter of the text to be able to interpret and discern what thus saith the Lord. Not meant how many times a person gets, you know, how popular they become. I'm, I'm really not speaking of anyone in particular because it's not necessarily just the preacher. He might have been or she might even be saying something, but you have just got to know God through his word for yourself. Amen? Um, the other thing that God, uh, well, in light of that, um, underneath your chairs, <clears throat> you have there uh, the book of Hebrews. I wonder if you'd go down and look underneath your chair. Really, like all of you can, you get a Bible, you get a Bible, everybody has a Bible underneath their chair. Um, okay, so we'll be giving these out for the entire um, series. And our heartbeat is that you would be able to bring this to church and you'd be able to take notes. And I know many of you may not have pens and whatnot right now, but, but that you would come to church really armed and ready with the text, ready to just dive in. Each verse, being able to uh, wrestle with it. Then when we go into city groups, even bringing this with you, bringing this one, one book of the Bible with you to uh, your city group. The other thing that um, <clears throat> I was really impressed by from God is that I really see in our culture, we are a people that are wildly distracted. We have distracted minds. It is very hard for us to pay attention to anything. We compulsively check emails and texts, and Facebook, and Twitter, Snapchat, or Instagram. We are constantly feeling this perpetual sense of importance happening outside of us. Our world is constantly dragging us into this multitasking kind of mentality. Did you hear that latest song? Did you see that latest gif? Did you hear what she said? Did you hear what he said? Have you seen that thing that happened in that game? Oh, did you see that article? Oh, can you believe what he tweeted? It's constant. And this fear of missing out, this perpetual sense of importance happening around us, it is causing us anxiety and it is causing us exhaustion. Should I click? Should I retweet? Should I read this text message? Should I check this email? What we are doing is we are constantly making these micro decisions and we are constantly multitasking, multi-thinking and multi-deciding. Our brains are constantly at work. Alan Noble, in his book, Disrupted Witness, he says, multitasking has been found to increase the production of the stress hormone cortisol, as well as the fight or flight hormone adrenaline, which can overstimulate your brain and cause mental fog or scrambled thinking. Multitasking creates a dopamine addiction feedback loop 
effectively rewarding the brain for losing focus and for constantly searching for external stimulation. Noble goes on to say, to make matters worse, the prefrontal cortex, which is your brain, has a novelty bias, meaning that its attention can be easily hijacked by something new. The proverbial shiny objects we use to entice infants, puppies, and kittens. The irony here, for those of us who are trying to focus amid competing activities, is clear. The very brain region we need to rely on for staying on task is easily distracted. We answer the phone, we look up something on the internet, we check our email, we send an SMS, and each of these things tweaks the novelty-seeking, reward-seeking centers of the brain, causing a burst of endogenous opioids, all to the detriment of our staying on task. Church, don't move past that quickly. What it's saying is that our phones, our emails, our texts, our social media is having a drug-like effect on us, causing us to be in a state of constant distraction, creating in us anxiety, creating in us depression even, because our minds are constantly at work making these micro decisions. Ron Webb, he is the executive director of the American Productive and Quality Center. He says this, that essentially to be able to focus, there's one thing we need to do. Focus involves a clear understanding of what is worthy of your attention and what is worthy of your distraction. My kids are away, so I get to chill at the house by myself right now. It's a fascinating feeling, amazing. Quietness, blessed quietness. And I'm like you, you know, when I watch like a documentary and I'll have my phone now, you know, like I'm into it, I'm kind of not into it. You know, I'm kind of on my phone because that documentary is worthy of distraction. It does not need my mind, my full mind. But when Faith, Leah, and Sophia come back, y'all, that's a game changer. They are going to get all my time, all my mind. Why? Because they are worthy of my attention. There's a reason why we use the phrase pay attention, because you have to give to it. So you have to first figure out what is worthy of your attention. Webb suggests that taking the time to identify what deserves your focus this year, this month, this day, even in a given hour, what do you need to focus on? What is of first importance? Your children, your health, your family, your friends. And then it is, of course, important that we tie that into our Lord, that he would have first importance. Because unfortunately, Jesus can get drowned in the many distractions around us. That Jesus is in the back there saying, hey, hey, look at me. Amidst all of the things bombarding our mind and our time and our energy. This book, this book of Hebrews, many scholars call it one of the most difficult books in the New Testament, if not even in the Bible in and of itself. But in this book, one of the things that you will see 
is that this was a group of Christians, but they were Jewish. Many believe that they were living in Jerusalem. And because they were living in Jerusalem, the city of David, the epicenter of Jewish thinking, the heart of their ethnicity, they were these Christians who were, yes, because Jew, uh, Christianity is an extension of Judaism, it was good that they understood the rituals and they understood the, the scriptures. But while they were trying to lock into Jesus and focus on Jesus, they'd be able to look over and see the temple right there. They see their family and their friends and their tribe going to temple, all the while trying to wrestle with who Jesus was. They would see the priests right there. The priests would be sacrificing. And then, of course, they would be persecuted. Their family and their friends would ostracize them because of Jesus. And what the author is trying to get this group to understand is to not get distracted in the midst of their culture and their ethnicity and their friends and their family and their tribe. Look to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. Deem him worthy of someone who cannot be distracted from your attention. And so he, he is encouraging them to lock in on him. Furthermore, this book of Hebrews, it touches on this idea of Christians needing to pay attention in the midst of persecution because they began to fall away because they loved Jesus at first, but the trials came. Persecution came. And Jesus was good for one season of my life, but I don't see him being all that in this next season. And if you really are going to endure, if you're really going to walk this thing out with the Lord, there will, of course, come a point where you're reading the Bible and something doesn't make sense. Of course, there's going to come a point where you thought this season would be about you being married or you having kids or you having that job or you having your come up or you having your breakthrough or you having the very thing you've been longing for. And now that Jesus is not giving it to you, is he still worthy of your attention? And to you who is feeling the distractions of this world, I would encourage you, look to Jesus. That is the heartbeat of this series. And as he opens up this text, again, he is trying to draw their minds away from the distraction. Open up your Bibles. Go to that first verse. If you're, if you're here, you can uh, go to, oops, sorry, um, I guess it's page seven on there in that Bible. All right. Why don't we read this together? Hebrews 1, 1, on three, one, two, three, long ago. Okay, so this is very powerful. The author begins by saying, God, long ago, 
There was a certain way he spoke to us. He had a variety of ways, and he spoke to us by the prophets. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about how God speaks in a second, but we have to just embrace the reality that the author is getting at, that God speaks, that he is the speaking God, that he is a God that has something to say. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book and it said, he is there and he is not silent. God has a word to say about himself. Now, if God was there and he was silent, then what would we do? We'd have to guess who he is. We'd have to guess what he thinks. We'd have to presume his ways. Many ways we'd have to interject for them. Or we could easily ignore him. Is God hiding and leaving clues? Is God an introvert? He doesn't like big crowds. Is God scared and he can't speak for himself? Is God intimidated by the nations? Or is God the speaking God that reveals himself? that has a word for yesterday, today, and forever. When someone speaks and uses speech and language, it communicates this idea that they want to be in relationship with you. Therefore, communication in and of itself is an indication of relationship whether it's audible or even braille. It is this idea that you want to connect and build relationship. Speaking happens when you want your life to connect to another person's life. It is a relationship, therefore, that communication is setting the seedbed for. There are very different philosophies about God, Philosophies that people would not say they believe, they would not use those terms, but essentially the way that our culture responds to God. One is called animism. Animism is this idea that everything essentially is spiritual, and we can look to these spiritual beings around us for insight. It is why animism is akin to ancestral worship that we would look to our forefathers for answers, that we would look to them as divinity. And so we would think about our grandparents, we would think about them, and we would want to not just feel their presence, but even invoke their presence, because we are looking to them for wisdom, because in them is the divine. There is also deism. And deism is exactly the opposite of what Francis Schaeffer is saying. Deism saying God exists and he is silent. We don't know what he thinks. Sure, you can pray to him. Sure, you could think about him, but we don't know what he's like. We have to interject for him. We have to speak for him because God is muted. Now that is essentially where our culture is because many people would say, well, if I was God, I would do this. Well, you're not God because God has said something about that given subject. If you believe God has revealed himself. One of the other philosophies there is pantheism. And that is to say God is the universe. 
that God is in the sun, moon, and stars. And it's very close to animism, but different in that it is in all of the creation. In fact, uh, pantheism would essentially say that the creation is the creator, that it is God. So God, therefore, becomes a force all around us. But is that God? Is God some vague, mystical being that when you look out in the sun, you say, well, I feel God because you feel the creation. And through that feeling, you then have to come up with how that being thinks. Is God just a feeling from the creation or does he have thoughts that he has revealed? What this author is saying about this God is that this God operates with propositional truths saying what thus saith the Lord. He wants to be heard, he wants to be understood, and he has a word for your life. That's what this God is saying. This God has something he has to say because this God is the speaking God, the God that wants to speak to you. Now, saints, I understand, truly I do, that all God's children don't like to read. I do understand that. If, the, if reading didn't exist and the whole Bible was on Netflix, I would read the Bible more, I'm sure. But I, I promise you, I'm not a big reader. But I believe God has something to say to me. And so the culture has grown in this thought they don't like to read. And that's kind of like everything is about short, 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 because people don't like to read, right? That's kind of the growing notion. People don't like to read. Meanwhile, it is actually illegal, illegal to pick up your phone and read. Many psychologists are telling people, don't put your phone by your bed. Now, why are they making laws and why are psychologists encouraging people to put their phone away from them? Because when we hear that ding, when we feel that boom, there is this compulsion to read the text. And we want to read the text because we believe there's a message meant for us. And maybe... The issue isn't the text, because we always read a text. The problem isn't texts, it's about messages. We read text messages all the time. We don't read the text because we're not sure if there's a message for us. And what God is saying is, no, 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 I'm not muted. I am the speaking God. Wait on I want to say something to you. I want you to hear from me. And the urgency we have when we believe there's a personal message coming directly to us, God is in the background saying, look, I can do the same thing. And I can speak more definitively than that machine. So he wants us to have that same compulsion for his word. Amen? Go on to Hebrews 1 and 2. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In verse 2, we now see the author shifting, and he is getting at this idea when he says, but, he's saying contrast. In other words, there's another thought I want you to know. Over here, God was speaking in many ways, many times, but now, but now, God is speaking through his son. F.F. Bruce says it this way. He spoke in storm and thunder to Moses in a still small voice to Elijah. To those who would not heed the gently flowing stream of Shiloh, he spoke by means of Euphrates flood. Priests and prophets, sage and sinner were in their several ways his spokesman. Yet all the successive acts and varying modes of revelation in the ages before Christ did not add up to the fullness of what God had to say. He is in essence saying, yes, God spoke through dreams. Yes, God spoke through visions. Yes, God spoke through prophets and priests and kings and heroes and heroines. But they were all a foreshadow of the fullness of Jesus. Rasul, when he preached his message in the book of Ruth, he talked about typology or types. He talked about how Ruth and Boaz were types of Christ. We talked about the impression that a type leaves. And in essence, showing us the interconnectedness of Ruth Boaz pointing to Jesus. The heartbeat of that then would be that, yes, when you read the book of Ruth, you should say to yourself, Ruth is courageous, my goodness. Look at the way she just loves the Naomi. Look at the way she serves. Look at the way she loves. You should do that. We should naturally look at Boaz and say to ourselves, man, look at his compassion. Look at his leadership. Look at his insights. Look at Boaz. But we would miss the point if we started to presume the point of the Old Testament is for the emulation of those priests, prophets, and leaders. Ruth and Boaz are not for the emulation of their morality, rather, but for the illumination of Jesus. We should look at them, but they are only pointing to Christ. Man, look at Ruth's compassion. Think about the compassion of Jesus. Woo, look at Boaz's leadership. But you can't wait till you get a load of Jesus's leadership. See, they're only a foreshadow. And that is important for you as well. Because on your job, people say, you are patient. And you say, I am. But check out the patience of Jesus Christ. You know what I'm saying? Like, you are not the hero of your own story. Even your own life is a typology of something greater. And so the heartbeat of what he is getting at is this idea Jesus has spoken, and God has spoken through him. John 1.1 would say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? God. Jesus was the son of God. Therefore, Jesus, and this is what he's really getting at, Jesus is not just a prophet. In fact, he's not just a messenger. Though he was a messenger, he was also the message. He was the word. He would say here, 
when he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In Greek, it is literally saying he has spoken to us in son, as if son was almost a language. He has spoken to us through the son. And so Jesus, he is showing us who God is. You see, if Jesus is just a messenger and a prophet, then the Muslims, that when they say that Jesus is a prophet, they'd be right. And it, furthermore, it would therefore, though, contradict what Jesus says about himself. The Mormons say that there is another revelation, another word by Joseph Smith there in a forest in upstate New York. He saw an angel. And they are the Latter-day Saints. But that is not what this author is saying. This author is saying that the fullness and the finality of God's word is found in Jesus Christ. That's how we understand and know God. That is what this author is trying to get people to see. If you want to pay attention to God, you must pay attention to Jesus. <clears throat> he moves on. He says that, he appointed him the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. So there is this idea, even if you look in verse 3, it says that, uh, that, that, that he sits, he's, ends up being seated at the right hand of God. So he has this idea of being heir of all things, that he created the world, that he's at the right hand of the Father. And if you think about an inheritance, this is essentially saying that this is who it all goes to. That if you were working with a father and you knew the son was going to get the inheritance of the business, you would know that as I work with the father, I also have to honor the son because he too operates with the same power. It is his inheritance. That is the idea he is getting at. He's saying he's at the right hand of God. He is saying that if you authoritatively look at God, you must authoritatively look at Jesus. You in turn, therefore, must give Jesus unlimited authority as God with his words. That when Jesus is speaking, God is speaking with all authority. That what God says about your life, you're underneath it. You live under the word. You see, when you live beside the word, it's advice. But when you live under the word, he's your Lord. And this is, so essentially what it is saying is that he is the authoritative word for all of life. Second Peter 1 verse 3 says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So you see what he's getting at there is that God has granted us all things pertaining to godliness, That's life and godliness. He doesn't say that 
through the understanding of the knowledge of God, you will understand life. He says life and godliness. Therefore, God has given you a word to be godly in any given situation. That you are equipped to reflect God's character because of his word and because of his spirit. He has given you a warrior spirit to be able to fight off sin. He has given you, he has empowered you to be able to live the life that God has called you to live. And in light of that, we must respond in knowing God, listen, God has a word for the given situation you're in right now. Now, I understand, saints, that we want to look in the Bible like it's a phone book. Where it's, you know, and there's actually books like that where you can look up anxiety and find verses and stuff like that. And those things are really good. But there are certain seasons, certain moments, and certain situations you ain't going to find a text for. So what do you say to your boss? How do you speak to your roommates? How do you, what should I say in this moment? Should I take this job? There are these micro decisions you have to make. But God has given us a word. Um, I was in seminary, and while in seminary, uh, there was a young lady. We were talking about the book of Ephesians. We were talking about Christ loving the church and the wives submitting, like, like the church submits to Christ and all these things. Obviously, some of the women in there wanted to understand the, the Greek, like submit. Like, what does that mean? Amen. So it was just like one of these long conversations, right? It was a great, but it ended up being really good. But then there was this woman in the back, and she got real quiet. And she began to cry. And so people started coming around her in class. And then she confessed that her husband had been abusing her. Her husband's also in the center. Now, there we are in this class. She's crying. And some of the women and some of the men start coming around her and saying, well, what are you doing about it? And she said, well, the Bible tells me to submit. And I mean, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't see what to do. And one of the things that we concluded even there. No, the Bible does not have a particular verse about domestic violence. But husband and wife. But where scripture may be silent about a specific subject, God is not silent about his revealed character. I can deduce from other texts that Jesus didn't beat the church. I can deduce that Jesus was gentle and lowly. I can deduce that Jesus was a sacrificial leader that you would love to follow. I can deduce that from the full corpus of texts. Therefore, I can come to a realization and a conclusion about my given situation. Just because it is not a specific text does not mean God has not given us his specific character. And so this is why you can't just be flimsy with the book. 
when I'm just, I'm going through something, I'm going through something, so Jesus, show me something. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes you'll go through quiet seasons. I know, I know there are some days where the angels descend. I mean, they come down and just like fire is coming down and God is just speaking to you. You're just like, oh man, you're writing it down. You're just like, this is amazing, God, God. You know, it's just awesome, right? But the more you press into not just the text, but him, listen, when you spend time in his word, it is not just for reading, it's for worship. It is for private worship. And the more that you get it in your heart and mind that you're not, that's what I was saying before about singing. We're not here singing. How many of you all, there's a lot of you that don't sing ever. You know, I, I don't think I've ever sung a song. I mean, I sung a song to my wife once or twice. Goodness gracious, I'm not a singer. But I sing to Jesus all the time because I worship him. It's not about reading. It's about worship. And the more that you are diving, listen, the more that you dive into the book, you're really trying to get into the heart of God. I want to know you, God. Moses said, show me your glory. I want to know you, God. And you start your day, God, I want to know you. I want to know you. And I'm going to sit here for 10 minutes. I want to know you. I want to see your face. And you begin to understand his character, and his character begins to reflect in your life. Amen? He, again, the author is trying to press into this idea of who Jesus is. He goes on to say, he is the radiance. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on There, the author is now pressing in even more. And, and, and what they are saying is this imagery of radiance. It invokes this idea of feeling and impression and warmth. Because radiance, the sun is something you see, but the radiance is what you feel. You feel the presence of the sun through radiance. And, then, and so what, it, what, it, what you then understand is it is through God, we God the Father, we understand him and know him, but it was Jesus who was Emmanuel that came down and was amongst us. We beheld his glory, the scriptures would say. But then he didn't end there, just leaving a witness through the Son. He then sent his Spirit to indwell us so that we might know him and be intimate with him. The Spirit of God, the work of Jesus, it is this idea of radiance, God coming down and being amongst us. He goes on to say, he is the exact imprint. <laughs> the, the word translated exact imprint or expressed image, it's only used here in the New Testament. 
And when it is used in extra biblical literature, it is this idea of engraving on wood or etching in metal or branding in an animal. It is like getting a signet ring and putting it down to put your signature so that people would know that is me. The word image there is icon. And it is saying precise copy, exact reproduction, the, the, the fine sculpture or portrait showing the exact representation. And what he is getting at is that everything God was, Jesus was and is. To deepen his point about his word, he is simply saying this. When you hear Jesus, you hear God. That's his point. Jesus is God, and that means when you hear Jesus, you hear God. So the author is saying it would be inconceivable to believe that you are into God but not into Jesus because Jesus is the very word of God. James, thank you so much for that sermon. I love it when you talk. I just don't like your words. It wouldn't make sense. Man, I love the sun. I just don't like warmth. It wouldn't make sense because the two go hand in hand. At least by this author's understanding, you must understand the son because he is the message and he is God himself, the exact imprint. But saints, this, this book, I pray you bring it with you every Sunday. We'll be in this for 11 weeks. I pray you mark it up and you make it yours. Next to it, you have parts that are eternal. You can put where you're at in your life right now. But it is so important that you, you have moments with the text, memories with the text. Because at the end there, he says that his word, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In Genesis, God speaks. He says, let there be light, and there is light. All of a sudden, God creates through his word. He speaks, and it is done. And there is a part of us right now that can even wonder, the God of the Old Testament that spoke things into creation, is that same God holding things in order because the world feels like chaos? Two mass shootings. You just wait. The elections will be crazy. The Russians will do something. You just wait. A new tweet, a new shooting, a new problem will come and it will it will hijack our minds and our attention. You just wait. At this point in our culture, we are addicted to distraction and it causes us anxiety with the presumption that the world is in a state of chaos. 
And while the nations rage, what will you do? He says he upholds the entire universe by his word. One author, when thinking of the universe and how it is held together, he thinks for a second, yes, there are tsunamis, yes, there are earthquakes, yes, there might be climate change. With no question, things are different. But is this universe out of control? He says this, Consider, for example, what instant destruction would happen if the Earth's rotation slowed down just a little. The sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. If it were any closer to us, we would burn up. If it were any farther away, we would freeze. Our globe is tilted on the exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons. If it were not so tilted, vapors from the oceans would move north and south, develop into monstrous continents of ice. If the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, the ocean tides would inundate the land completely twice a day. After the first flooding, of course, the others would not matter as far as we were concerned. If the ocean floors were merely a few feet deeper, than they are, then the carbon dioxide and the oxygen balance on the Earth's atmosphere would be completely upset. No animal plant, plant or plant life could exist. If the atmosphere did not remain at its present density, but thinned out even just a little, many of the meteors which now harmlessly burn up when they hit our atmosphere would constantly bombard us. We'd have to live in underground meteor-proof buildings. How does the universe stay in this kind of fantastically delicate balance? Jesus Christ sustains and monitors all movements and all inner workings because Christ is preeminent in his power and he maintains all things. It is a cosmos, meaning there is an order. It is not a chaos, meaning out of control. God is in control. He upholds the entire universe by his power. But lastly, as I close, when we say the world is being upheld, he does not only mean the cosmos and the moons and the stars. He means you. He means God is able to hold you up with his word. He means God is able to sustain you through his word. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. God can hold you through his word. He can keep you from stumbling. I told the uh, last service this story, and I was a mess, so pray my strength, saints. When I, um, when I was pastoring in Raleigh, North Carolina, nothing went right. You know, it's, a, it's an honor to serve you all. I mean that with my whole heart. It's an honor to be your pastor. So many of you love me, and I feel that. 
And it is hard to be at a church when you don't think the people like you. And we just had a lot of conflict. There were a lot of problems. I spent five years there, and then I moved down to Atlanta. And I was supposed to plant a church in Atlanta. So I gathered a team. And when I gathered that team, one of the guys, he secretly was applying for a different job without telling me. And so I was making announcements, and I was telling people, I'm planting a church in the west end of Atlanta. And all of a sudden, he had a different job. And then the next guy on the team said, hey, if he's leaving, I'm leaving. And so I had this name of a church, and I had my little, they have this thing called a prospectus. I had it all together. Failed. I decided, okay, well, I'm going to apply to different churches. So I applied to this church in Memphis. I came down to the last two candidates, big old church. And they said, we chose the other guy. Applied to another church in Chicago. They chose the other guy. I went to apply to a church in Atlanta. They had stopped posting. They just, and they had put a pastor in right before I applied. I called my cousin who worked for Coca-Cola. And I was like, man, I need a job. He's like, send me your resume. He looked at my resume. This dude is the hiring manager, mind you. He was like, yeah, man, you just don't have the qualifications. And I was like, well, can I just work on the line or something? He was like, nah. So I couldn't even get a job there. Down the street from my house was a burrito shop called Bell Street Burritos where I used to spend time with the Lord. And the guy there who managed the shop was a Christian. And I said, hey, can I get an application? I had a master's degree. I thought I could preach. I thought I could lead. And I'm applying to Bell Street Burritos to work the register at 36 years old. 30, 35, 35 years old. I mean, I'm just so embarrassed. And my daughters, I would, um, at night, I would do this little thing with them, especially with faith. And I would say, hey, come on, before you go to bed, what do we do? And I said, love the Lord with all your and she would say, all your heart. And I say, okay, love the Lord with all your, she'd say, mind. I said, love the Lord with all your, she'd say, soul. And I said, love the Lord with all your strength. And she'd give daddy a hug. And she'd go to bed. And after that, after I went and picked up that application from Bell Street Burritos and it was sitting there in my room, my wife was, you know, she had anxiety as I did too. We decided to go to the park over by an aquarium there in Atlanta. When we went over there, you ever have a moment where you just start thinking about life? 
you can't even see what's happening in front of you. You just start thinking like, what is going on? And my girls were there playing on the swings. I wasn't even paying attention to them. And the tears just started welling up in my eyes. And I said, what is happening right now? And faith, my little baby at four years old, randomly, out of nowhere, while I'm in this moment, comes up to me and says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I said, yes, baby. And I got a tear in my eye. She goes, love the Lord with all your... <laughs> and I pointed to my chest and I said, heart. She said, come on, Daddy, do it. Love the Lord with all your... And I said, mind. She said, come on, Daddy. Love the Lord with all your... I said, soul. And she said, and love the Lord with all your... And I said, strength. And I knew that was Jesus talking to me. And I knew that Jesus was saying, don't look at that application, look at me. Don't look at your failure, look at me. Don't even look at the opportunities you think you can have. Look at me. Because those distractions will destroy you. But I, I am greater than any employment. Look to me. Look to me. Look at me, G. Look at me, James. Look at me. And I just began to worship. And I would just get up in every day and listen. Every day in that dark season, my only success was worship. Then, um, literally a few weeks later, a friend of mine told me to go check out this little town called Brooklyn, New York. came up here and I knew that God was calling me here. And before I knew it, doors started opening and God did his thing and now God has us here. But it wasn't money, it wasn't gifting, it wasn't skill. His word upheld me and his word will uphold you. And don't get distracted. Don't get distracted. God knows exactly where you are and he has a word for where you are right now. Don't get distracted. The old saints would say, hold on to his unchanging hand. Anchor yourself in the word of God, church. You hear me? Anchor yourself in the word of God. Be concrete in the word of God. Know Jesus. Look to Jesus. Wait on Jesus. He's got it all in his hands. Father, we just love you. We love you. We love you, God. We look to you, Jesus. We look to you, Lord. We hold on to you, God. You are our everything. And we wait on you, God. Would your word, God, would it, way deeply in our hearts. 
Would your word, God, be what springs us up in the morning? Would your word, God, get the attention it is due? In Jesus' name, amen? I wonder if you'd stand with me. We're going to have a time of communion. On the night that Jesus would eventually give his life and be betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, and he told his friends, this is my body broken for you. He took a cup, he fills it with wine. He says, this is my blood poured out for you. And Jesus was displaying symbolically the sacrifice he would have. Jesus was giving himself for the church. That Jesus has gave himself for you. And tonight, enjoy Jesus. Know that he has died for your sin. And that there's not enough quiet time or Bible time that can make up for knowing God. But the only way to truly know God is through Jesus and trusting him for the sacrifice of your sins, for those things you know you have done, and giving him the leadership of your life. And so we ask tonight as the communion comes that you would just do business with Jesus, that you would give yourself to Jesus. You're going to come down these aisles in the center, go out the outer aisles. When you go back to your seat, we ask that you just continue to worship, that you just continue to worship, that you continue to tell God where you're at, that you would even lift up your word and say, God, I want to dedicate myself to your word, that you would have a moment with God and do business with him. Father, we thank you for this moment. We ask that you and only you would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Down these aisles, out the outer aisles, in your own time. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.